even though it's always called the prodigal son, I really believe it's the father's actions that stick out to me. How he reacts, how he acts, how he waits, how he loves both sons. You know, it's interesting because if you actually read the text, it gives us the subject right off the start. It says, there was a man. This is referring to the father. Then it says, who had two sons. So the real subject of the parable is the father. And yet, we get all three. And I believe Jesus did this intentionally to really describe the whole audience. Because remember, right in the beginning, as it showed in the video there earlier in the chapter, the tax collectors and sinners were with Jesus, and the Pharisees were sitting off to the side judging them. And so he uses the prodigal son to represent the tax collectors and sinners, and he used the obedient son to represent the Pharisees and teachers of the law. But we really wanted to show him was the good father and how he treats. And those who have repented and are in God's fatherly love should rejoice with that. And so I really believe that is the message of this story. But have you ever wondered, where did Jesus get this story from? Because we all have inspiration for our stories, for our metaphors, for our narratives. Was there an actual story that took place? You know, not every parable is actually factual. They are often just metaphors to describe a greater meaning, in this case, the good father. But I believe just like us, could it be that Jesus was inspired by reading the word of God to create this story? Now, I can't say for certain, but I'd like to take a stab at it. In my biblical exegesis class, I had to do a 20-page paper on eight verses in the Old Testament. Yeah, I was feeling the exact same when I got that assignment. (laughs) I was like, only eight verses anywhere in the Old Testament? And it just so happened that I actually opened up the Bible, and the first thing I saw was Psalm 119, which I love, Psalm 119. And as I came to one of the stanzas, the, the prodigal son and the good father just jumped out of the pages to me. And it made me wonder, maybe Jesus, because he was a Jew, he would have read these psalms. They were actually alphabetical, which I'll get to in a second, to memorize the word of God. That maybe he drew from this psalm the story of the good father and the prodigal. You know, but I want to give you a little bit of background. It's always good to get some context of a passage we're going to read. You know, I've learned in, in class that knowing the historical and the rhetorical and the literary background is very helpful in interpreting that passage. You know, Psalm 119 is one of only three psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 9, and Psalm 119, that are considered Torah psalms, or in other words, law psalms. In other words, the focus of those psalms is on the Word of God. And Psalm 119 in particular is unique because there are eight terms in Psalms 119 to describe the Word of God, and they're used in almost every single verse of Psalm 119 minus just a few. Now, Psalm 119 is interesting. It it has 22 stanzas, each with eight verses, which I believe the writer of Psalms was showing that I want eight verses to represent the eight words that Hebrews use to describe the Word of God. It really is a psalm about the Word of God. It's the longest of all the psalms of the 150 psalms, and I want to focus on the ninth stanza, verse 65 through 72. And I'm going to compare the psalmist, the one who's singing this psalm, the one who's writing the psalm as the prodigal son, and who he's praying to and writing to as God the good father, with a desire to return to him. 
Just as we saw in the Luca narrative, and we will see in this particular stanza, that God allows affliction to bring about good so that he could return to the Father. You know, Christopher Ash, in a great book, Commentary, connects affliction with a father's love. It says this, It is one of the highest marks of the love of the father that he afflicts his child with pain. Sometimes he does this by financial distress, pressures, or poverty. Sometimes he afflicts by shame as some moral failure brings upon us public embarrassment or shame. Sometimes afflictions come through illness, sometimes by troubles in the family, sometimes by sheer exhaustion and pressure of work. In a hundred ways, the loving father afflicts his child that the child may come back to him. You know, it's really interesting. There's some cool historical and archaeological facts about Psalm 119. First of all, we have found several sections of Psalm 119 in several of the Qumran manuscripts. That's the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think that's interesting because we actually have a complete text that actually encompasses verses 59 through 73. So we actually have the entire stanza that we're going to talk about today. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing because the Qumran scrolls, over 20% of the biblical scrolls are the Psalms, which really shows how important the Psalms were to the faith community. And I really believe Jesus knew these Psalms. He read these Psalms. Now, in terms of literary genre, Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem or acrostic poetry, meaning that it follows an alphabetical sequence. In this case, the Hebrew alphabet. Here's an interesting fact about Psalm 119, though, that's very unique from other Hebrew acrostic psalms. Psalm 119, however, is unique in the sense that it consists of 22 stanzas of eight lines each. That is 176 lines. The first eight lines, that is the first stanza, begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The second stanza with the second letter, and so on. Until eventually all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet have been worked through. So Psalm 119 is really the ABCs of the Word of God. Now, what we don't realize in English is if you actually look at the Hebrew of each of those stanzas, the first letter and first word of every verse begins with that letter of the stanza. So literally, every stanza is that entire letter. It's the ABCs. I want to choose the ninth stanza. It uses the Hebrew letter Teth. And it continues this acrostic by having every verse begin with this letter. Now, there's a word that particularly sticks out in the Hebrew, and that is the Hebrew for good, which also happens to begin with the letter tef. In fact, five of the eight verses begin with the word good in the Hebrew Bible. You don't see this in the English. So it's obvious that this stanza, the psalmist is writing about God as the good father. But as we're going to learn, even though we have a good father, sometimes we are the prodigal and we go astray. Let's begin. Verse 65. You guys ready to get in the word? We're only going to read eight verses, so let's pay attention, all right? Now, I put on here both the NIV and the complete Jerusalem Bible translation, and you'll understand why is there's some cool differences with some of the translations from a Jewish mindset as we read these verses. Because remember, this was originally written to the Jews. Not to Christians, okay? This is the Old Testament. Verse 65. Do good to your servant according to your word. 
Do you want God to do good? But how do you want him to do good? According to your desire? According to your wants? According to your expectations? Or do we have the wisdom and knowledge to go, God, do good, but not based off my feelings, my expectations, my desires, but according to your word. Because if you want to be like Jesus, it is written should be what guides your heart, not your emotions. Now, he's not saying you don't have emotions. We do. He gives you free will. But are we believing in a good father so strongly that we then believe every word that comes from his mouth is ultimately for our good? God, do good, but according to your word. See, according to your word means that it doesn't mean we're exempt from affliction. That we're exempt from trial. That God doing good doesn't mean everything is hunky-dory, peachy cane, whatever phrase you want to use. That when God does good, it may involve something we don't perceive as good. Right? Anyone here ever struggle wondering that you're thinking, I don't feel like God's good to me. Am I the only one? Okay, so you can relate to this. That's what's so wonderful about the Psalms. Psalms are written not just to give you knowledge and wisdom or to understand and hear, but Psalms are written so that you feel as well as think and understand. That's what Psalms do. They bring the mystical side of our relationship to God because it involves your mind and your heart. And so as we read this Psalm, put yourself in the psalmist's feet. Saying, God, do good to me. But I've learned according to your words. Let's see what happens next. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Why did he ask for both knowledge and good judgment? Because knowledge is just information. Good judgment is an informed judgment. If we don't have the right information, the right knowledge, we'll make wrong judgments. That's what we do with God. Because we don't have the knowledge that God truly is good at times, we make a judgment that God is not good. God is good, period. The problem is never God, it's our knowledge, which makes us make wrong judgments. Can we relate to that? Have you done it? Haven't your own children done that? Mom, you dad, you don't understand. You don't have the knowledge we have. We've lived through this. Good judgment can only come if it's combined with knowledge. And knowledge sometimes is learned through the hard knocks of life. Most of my wisdom was not from learning it from a book. It was learning from making the wrong decisions. And that's how I gained knowledge, right? And that's sometimes what we have to allow to happen, which is why so often, haven't you read the prodigal son and thought, what kind of father lets him go off and do that? Because sometimes our words aren't enough. They've got to learn it the hard way right? Haven't we? That's the challenge with being a loving father, but also respecting free will. And I'm not always good with that as a dad. I'll be honest. I make many mistakes in that area, but our God does not. You know, uh, another commentary, Mott, he adds this, as you face life with its many challenges and decisions, ask God to teach you good judgment and knowledge as given in his word. When you learn a commandment of God, obey it. Just do what the Bible teaches you to do, and you will end up being a person of good judgment and knowledge. 
Now we get into the nitty-gritty. He has asked God to do good, but according to his word. But he also prayed, God, please give me knowledge and good judgment. Why? Because of this next verse. If he hadn't asked for knowledge and good judgment, he would never be able to say what he says next. Look what he says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. What? I thought affliction is negative. Yet here we're seeing that because he has this right view of God, that God is good, that even when I don't perceive good, he is doing good. And in fact, as I look back, he did good through my affliction. And I think if we're honest, most of us, hasn't the most good in our life been after we've gone through affliction? Isn't that where we learn the most? And yet it's funny how in, 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 in today's society, we think to be good to each other means we just have to be really respectful. Don't push any buttons. Don't, don't disciple the heart. Guys, do, do you want to obey God? Who here wants to obey God? Then keep your hand up and agree that then you must accept affliction. Because before you're afflicted, he didn't. He went astray. Who wants to go astray? In fact, it's going astray that the affliction takes place for the purpose of bringing us back. Even though we may not perceive or think that God is good. He asked God to do good, right? But he also asked for knowledge and good judgment. So when that affliction came, he realized, wait, God is good. I've not been good. I have strayed from his commands, therefore, teach me your commands, right? That's the only way to to overcome it. That's how we're going to obey. Now, I think this is interesting because the complete Jerusalem Bible actually uses the word instead of affliction is humbled, which shows us what the goal of affliction is, humility and a teachable heart, right? Right? But isn't it interesting how often affliction does the opposite to us? Why? Because we've made a judgment that God is not good. He's not a good father. How can he let me go through this? And therefore, rather than getting humility in a humbled heart, in a teachable heart, we continue to go astray. See, we've got to begin with what we believe before we have the right behavior. You can't just behave yourself to faith. You've got to have the right view of God, that he is a good father and he does good, but according to his word. So if you want to have good judgment, can you do that without being in the Bible? No. Then how are you making your judgments? The big decisions in your life, what are you using to guide you? Are they going to lead you toward God or astray? It's got to be his word. That's what we need to do. You know, didn't we see in the prodigal son, only after affliction does it say he came to his senses. And the first thing he recognizes is what? Man, back home, I had a good father. In fact, such a good father that even those who are not his sons have it better than I do right now. I had a good father and he did good and I completely was ungrateful for that. I need to go back and it doesn't even matter where I'm the son. I'll be just one of those servants who is treated well by my good father. He got the right view, and now he was able to obey. This is a powerful verse. I don't always get it. 
You know, this is cool. Ash adds this comment to this whole verse. It says, and so we have a deep truth. No man will love his Bible until God has afflicted him. He may be intrigued by it. He may have an intellectual affection for it. He may have been brought up to have a cultural affinity with it or an aesthetic love of its verbal resonances, but he will not delight in that word. And above all, the wealth of the world until he has felt the fragility of the world, this age, this mortal body. But when that happens, he will cling to the word as the only tie to the age to come. Wow. We got to learn to love affliction. Because we believe God is good and does good. In fact, we get to that conclusion here in the next verse. Verse 68. You are good. And what you do is good. And the only right response to that theology, to that belief that God is good and does good, teach me your decrees. Guys, if there's anything that you leave today... If you truly believe in a good father, it's simply that statement we should leave saying, good father, teach me your decrees. It's the only way we're going to believe and live the way he wants us to. If God were not good, think of what this world would be like. I know it seems terrible when you turn on the news, but if you remove God completely, how much worse would it be? (laughs) Seriously. Even in the midst of darkness, there's good because God is good. And God does good. And even you guys, even though I know some of you, you come here today and you're about, I don't know if I can take communion. I wasn't good this week. But does that week define your whole existence? You tell me you don't have any good about you? What lie makes you believe that? It's amazing. So often when brothers come and they confess, I blew it. And I go, okay, you blew it one time, five minutes out of this entire week. So you're obviously a complete sinner and just, just cannot do it. Wait a minute. Five minutes determines your whole destiny? I don't get it. That's bad that happened. Don't continue it. Let's repent. But man, you're still good because God is good and he does good. But if we don't believe that, then we will continue to sin. We'll continue to go astray. Lord, teach me your decrees. The next verse, sometimes, though, when you do obey, you're going to get more affliction. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. See, sometimes affliction comes not only from those who disobey God, but even from your brothers and sisters right next to you. But let me ask you, are you like the psalmist? Who these lies, these opinions, these thoughts change your view of God? This psalmist goes, regardless of that, I keep your precepts. God is good. Now, if you believe that, then you also believe the very ones who are smearing with lies are part of God's goodness. What? Absolutely. I know you've all been in part of a lot of different ministries, and I've learned being in the ministry, there will always be some people that we just, oh, no matter where I go, I've never been in ministry where that hasn't happened. But before I judge that person, I have to remember, oh, I'm probably that person for someone else in their ministry. Right? They never told me, but I have a feeling that's probably true too. 
If we really believe God is good, then even if someone sins against you, it may be for your good. I know this is true. I remember when Leanne and I were engaged and we're about to get married. And, you know, obviously we're trying to keep our boundaries, leading a church as a dating couple, a lot of pressure. And I remember we, we honestly were very careful about our purity. I was never, ever alone with her in a room or a car or any place. But sometimes I give her a hug. And I had a brother come in. And he's like, you guys are too close, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, are you crazy? But you know what I did? I go, you know what? Maybe God had him say that to protect me from going further. Whether I agree with him or not, whether he was right or not, what if God allowed that so that I would hold to the decrees? Could that be? Absolutely. If God is good, he does good, even through those who sin against us. These are tough words. Now, here's the problem. As you continue to obey, you're more afflicted. But the more you're afflicted, the more you obey. We need to embrace this as part of the good Father's goodness to us. He's not done with those who hurt you. Verse 70. Their hearts, he's talking about the ones who sin against you, are callous and unfeeling. And I like the this complete Jerusalem Bible says, their hearts are thick as fat. <laughs> but I delight in your law. See, this, this, this verse describes the callousness, the unfeeling, or the thick as fat of someone who's opposing God, who's opposing the good father. And it's contrasted this unfeeling to the psalmist who has a lot of feeling. I delight. Guys, that that word delight involves emotion. It involves energy. When you wake up and have your quiet time, is there delight? There should be. I delight in the law. I delight even when it challenges me. I delight. I think we got to bring more emotion into our relationship with God. Don't let emotion lead you or guide you. Okay, the word, according to your word, do good to me. But we got to delight, we got to feel. And if you don't feel it, talk about it. Get help, figure it out. There are so many practices from our church tradition and other Christian traditions throughout history that can give us the tools to find delight in the law again. There are times I'll read the same passage and it's just nothing, nothing. But keep obeying. Go through the affliction even of quiet times that don't feel great. Because maybe that very affliction of quiet times not being great is God doing good. Because he's testing whether you're only going to obey when it feels good or you're going to obey because God is good. And so you keep reading and you keep reading. And I'll tell you, you do it, you will find delight. It has never failed me. Sometimes it takes two weeks, sometimes it takes a month, but as I continue to read this law, suddenly it comes alive. Right? Yeah, you can clap to that. Now, Mott also addresses this callous, fat heart. So it is with a heart that is fat. Such people become sluggish, sleepy, and insensitive to God's word. They hear it preached. They see the words on the page, but it does not make the impression that it ought. Their heart sleeps through the message, and therefore they don't get it. Wow. Is that where you're at today? 
then I have a feeling it's because you don't believe God is good. That you don't really in your heart believe he is a good father who does good, even in affliction. The psalmist learned the lesson. The psalmist is the prodigal who returned and learned good knowledge and judgment. Look at the next verse. It was good for me to be afflicted. Did you see that? It was good? See, guys, until we can say that about our trials, we can't honestly say we really believe God is the good father. But if we really believe it, then we can look at any affliction, any trial, any hardship, any suffering and go, it is good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And if you don't agree with me, then ask, ask this. How did Jesus learn? According to Hebrews, it said he learned through his suffering. Obedience. So if you want to be like Jesus, then you got to take affliction like Jesus. you got to learn from it. Hebrews tells us that God is a father who disciplines us. It hurts for the moment. It is affliction. But those who are trained by it, that's the key. There's a condition. They will have a harvest of righteousness and peace. What kind of father do you want to worship? I want to worship a good father who is good and does good and even allows affliction for my good. We now see the prodigal return home with the final verse. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousand pieces of silver and gold. What has he learned? It reveals the prodigal has returned realizing that all the other things he thought were valuable or not. That I should have just stayed with the Father because the Word is the voice of the Father in relationship to him. That that's the most valuable thing he had. Not the treasures, not the wealth, but man, I had a relationship with a good Father who spoke to me, who communicated to me, and man, the Word from my Father is like precious gold and silver. How you invest your time and money shows you whether that's true or not. I believe you do believe the word of God is gold and treasure, as we just heard about our special missions. I believe you do believe that. But we got to continue that. We are the prodigal that the good father is calling home, but he sometimes does it through affliction. Have you ever wondered, what if he had not come to his senses? What would that look like? I want to show this painting. It's called The Prodigal Son. It's by Thomas H. Benton, and it's actually in the Dallas Art Museum. So if you want to go see it, you can go see it. Do you notice the difference in this picture? He's an older man. He's finally come home, but way too late. He hadn't come to his senses. And so what do you see? You see a home that's no longer livable. The father is no longer present. And the fattened calf that would have been killed for him in, in festivity and celebration is nothing but bones. What prodigal are we going to be? Guys, if we wait too long to repent, that might be our end of story. But that's not our good father. Our good father is good, and he does good. I hope this has encouraged you this morning. I believe Jesus was inspired by this psalm. 
to write about the prodigal and to write about the good father. And so our response needs to be simply this. Good father, teach me your decrees. But ultimately it was Jesus who taught us about the father's love, who opened the door to the father's home, and will ultimately invite us to go be with our good father. But guess how it came about? Through him having to afflict his own son. It is good that Jesus was afflicted for our transgressions. Let us pray for the communion.